Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last time we looked at the Hebrew manuscripts known as the Masoretic Texts from the Middle Ages. Today we'll focus on the earliest Hebrew manuscripts ever found, including those at the Cairo Geniza, the Engedi Scroll, the Nash Papyrus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ketef Hanam Silver Scroll. This is all in our quest to understand where we get our Bibles from, in particular looking at the first part of the Bible, what we Christians call the Old Testament, or Jewish people call the Tanakh, and the manuscripts underlying that. This is going to be very helpful for future lectures when we cover the process of figuring out which readings are best when manuscripts differ from one another. Here now is episode 331, How We Got the Bible, part two, earliest Hebrew manuscripts. Today, we're going back before the Leningrad Codex of the year 1000 or 1010, uh, we're going back before the Aleppo Codex of 925, before even the earliest of the ones we looked at, the Cairo Codex, as Cairo, Egypt, to earlier centuries. And we are going to look at several main points. One, the Cairo Geniza text. Two, the Engedi Scroll. Three, the Nash Papyrus. Four, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And last of all, number five, the Ketef Hinnom Silver Scroll. And by looking at these texts, we are going to go back before the Middle Ages into earlier and earlier times until we get to even before Christ with the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Ketef Hinnom Silver Scroll. So that's our plan. You ready to join me? What do you say? Uh, we're going to begin with this Cairo Geniza text and look at this. I mean, this one has a whole story to itself. Uh, the first question you got to ask yourself is, what in the world, Sean, is a Geniza? Well, I mentioned last time that a Geniza is involved with dealing with texts that are worn out. Uh, what do you do when a Bible wears out? Well, if you're Jewish, you bring it to the synagogue, to a special room in the synagogue called the Geniza. Sometimes these Geniza are in cemeteries, but a lot of times they're in the synagogue, and then they're brought out and buried as part of a ritual. So we read here a description, a very nice description from the book called Sacred Trash. <laughs> Funny name for a book, right? Uh, we read, A nook near or under the synagogue's ark, a basement room, a cubbyhole, all could and did function as genizot. Genizot is just the plural of geniza. The fragments that required this sort of treatment became known as shemot, or names. They were considered sacred, because they bore the name of God. In some towns and cities, the Geniza materials were taken out of their receptacles on a designated day and buried in an elaborate ritual that was part funeral and part carnival. Depending on local tradition, the papers and books and often discarded ritual objects that included or had contact with a written text, such as mezuzot, phylacrity straps, and the like, would be placed in straw baskets, leather sheets, or lengths of white cloth like shrouds. Coffins draped with decorative fabrics were sometimes used to hold a no longer valid Torah scroll. So this is where it's actually really significant for us. And the privilege of pallbearing was bestowed upon those who had donated money to the synagogue. Songs were sung, cakes eaten, and a rock was drunk as a procession set out for the cemetery. 
This act of inhumation served, in fact, as a kind of twin ritual to the dedication of a new Torah scroll, and after that old scroll was buried, pilgrimages to the quote-unquote grave would be performed just as they were made to the tombs of certain holy men. Even to this day, a synagogue will have a Geniza where you bring your old Bibles or any, really anything with the name of God written on it. So it could be a commentary on the Bible, it could be a letter you wrote to a friend. If it had the name of God written on it, the proper way to care for that is to bring it to this special location and then once that's filled, to bury it someplace during this, in this kind of a ritual. However, in local areas, the tradition is different. So for example, in old Cairo, Egypt, there is a synagogue called the Ben Ezra Synagogue that put anything written in Hebrew, whether it had God's name or not, it put anything written in Hebrew all in the Geniza, and they never emptied it. They just kept piling stuff in century after century after century until there were about 10 centuries worth of Hebrew texts in this huge pile in this place in Egypt where it hardly ever rains and it's dry and paper just lasts forever. And so over the centuries, there were hundreds of thousands of scraps. And this Geniza was discovered in 1896 by a man named Solomon Schechter. Uh, I mean, people had known about it before, but he was the one that sweet-talked his way into allowing the chief rabbi to give him access to the Geniza. It's like an eight-foot by six-and-a-half-foot room with these tall 18-foot ceiling. And uh, he's in there, and he's pouring through. He's, he's a, a professor at the time at Cambridge University and had been alerted to the existence of this place. And so he was able to convince the chief rabbi and the people at the Ben Ezra Synagogue in Old Cairo, Egypt, to allow him to take home as much as he wanted. And so he ended up taking home something like almost 200,000 fragments of Hebrew writings. Some of them have scripture on them. This is a Geniza after all, right? So it's the number one place you put your worn out Bible. But so many other things are there too. Little shopping lists or notes to each other, letters, um, different, even just there's a, a one where they have a child who's writing out the same sentence over and over again, obviously just learning Hebrew. And that's in the Geniza as well. So I mean, it's a full cross-section of what Jewish life was for the 10 centuries between the 900s and the 1900s. And you've got documents that are written in Hebrew letters, but you don't have to only write Hebrew in Hebrew letters. You can also write Aramaic in Hebrew letters. You can write Arabic in Hebrew letters. Arabic is generally not written in Hebrew letters, but you can do it. And they did it down in this old Cairo. They have even Yiddish and Latin written out in Hebrew letters, Persian and Ladino. So, I mean, this is really an interesting collection of documents the scholars have been working on for over a century now, and uh, they're still trying to figure out the implications of it. It's a huge cross-section of society. Now, today, we have the Friedberg Geniza Project, which has digitized 460,000 images, and you can get an app on your phone uh, you just have to type in Cairo Geniza in your app store and boom, 400,000 fragments. As far as documents, about 200,000 documents. Some of them have multiple pages. So we have the Cairo Geniza text. They come from the 900s up to the 1900s. And uh, some of the, these uh, Torah scrolls that we find in there really go back even a couple of centuries before that. But they are, broadly speaking, within that Masoretic 
tradition. Uh, then we get to the Engedi Scroll. The Engedi Scroll was discovered in 1970 in a synagogue that had been burned down. So it's an archaeological find at Engedi, uh, the ruins of a synagogue dated to sometime between the 1st and the 4th century. This little nugget here is a little charred remain of a part of the Bible. Like I said, it was found in 1970, but nobody could read it because even touching it caused it to disintegrate. It was so badly charred in a fire in about the year 600 AD. And so it sat in storage at the Israel Antiquities Authority, the IAA, where they keep all of these different things, until 2015 when a professor from the University of Kentucky was able to apply some computer scanning to it, some microtomography x-rays, and some really advanced computer software that virtually unwrapped the scroll so that they were able to read it. And that didn't happen until 2015, 2016, when this scroll was actually virtually unwrapped. And I have a picture of it here to see. This is a portion of Leviticus. It's actually the first eight verses of the book of Leviticus, which reads, The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd of, or from your flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without a blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. This Hebrew text is identical to the Masoretic tradition, which is a later grouping of texts, but this confirms that the Masoretic text is something that actually goes to before this time. And it's the earliest evidence of that exact form in the Masoretic text. The Nash Papyrus is a little document that has the Ten Commandments on it, and uh, also the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It was found in Egypt in 1898 and is dated to the second century before Christ. So, I mean, whoa, talk about pushing things way back. And it's the earliest known written Hebrew manuscript outside of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're going to get to them in just a minute. You can see it's a Hebrew text, and it has the, the Ten Commandments on it, and at the, at the bottom you have... The Shema, a little challenging to read. You'd really have to be a specialist to be able to make out all these letters, don't you think? So then, after the Nash Papyrus, finally we get to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls is where we're going to spend the majority of our time here today because they are just, they, they just deserve it. I mean, there's just so many texts there and they're just so old and so fascinating. Dead Sea Scrolls, everyone's heard about them, nobody knows what they are. So uh, this will be your chance to learn what they are or maybe learn a little bit more about what they are. And I wanna begin with this quotation. The term, Dead Sea Scrolls, is redolent of enigma, of intrigue, perhaps even of sacred mysteries. Hovering in the background are images of caves, scrolls, barren deserts, and intense scholars hunched over tiny scraps of leather. First thing we need to talk about is Qumran. That's the place near where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, the, the little village of Qumran and the, the region of Qumran is where these caves are. It's a dry, hot place, eight miles south of Jericho. And you can see it's also near the Dead Sea. Here's another image of it, rotated slightly. We can see that uh, the red pen there is the Qumran. And you can see right behind it, you have all these cliffs 
right? And these cliffs are where these caves are found. And you can see on the left side of the screen, the Dead Sea. So you can see it's very close, about a mile from shore. And uh, the Dead Sea is just such an unusual place anyhow. I, I like to think of it as the navel of the earth. <laughs> That's kind of a silly way to think of it. But the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the entire planet. Uh, it's 1,412 feet below sea level. I visited Qumran. It is a, an otherworldly place. Uh, here's a little tourist sign that I saw when I was there. Here's a picture of me standing in front of the, the cliffs behind me. And you can see little spots where there might be caves. You can see that it is an arid place and there are these cliffs and little caves everywhere and then there are some bigger caves around. So as I said, Qumran is an otherworldly place. It's really unusual. Geza Vermes said, Qumran occupies one of the lowest parts of the earth on the fringe of the hot and arid wastes of the wilderness of Judea and is today, apart from occasional invasions by coachloads of tourists, lifeless, silent, and empty. But from that place, members of an ancient Jewish religious community, whose center it was, hurried out one day and in secrecy climbed the nearby cliffs in order to hide away in eleven caves their precious scrolls. No one came back to retrieve them, and there they remained undisturbed for almost two thousand years. So the story goes like this. In the year 1947, a young Bedouin, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, we're not really sure, was looking for his goat. And he was, <laughs> it's unbelievable, he was in the region of Qumran. And of course, nobody's lived there for centuries, it's just ruins. And he was wandering around and he thought maybe his goat was in a particular cave and he threw a stone into the cave and heard a jar, a clay jar shattering. And so he went up there to investigate and he discovered clay pots with ancient scrolls. And uh, he found, and uh, his group there found seven of these scrolls and divided them into two lots, one lot of four and one lot of three, and sold them and then went to go find more. Three of the scrolls were purchased by a Hebrew University professor and four of the scrolls were purchased by the Archbishop, a gentleman by the name of Mar Samuel, in charge of the Syrian Orthodox Monastery at Jerusalem. And so Samuel ended up showing them to some scholars at the American Schools of Oriental Research in Jerusalem. And they looked at them and said, these are, these are really ancient Hebrew manuscripts. These are, these are possibly the oldest Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible we've ever seen or ever even heard of. And uh, so they were recognized as such. And so on April 11, 1948, it was announced that the oldest known biblical manuscripts had been discovered. And subsequent to that, Samuel went to the United States, of all places, uh, looking to find a buyer so that he could sell his manuscripts. And he tried for years to sell them, but nobody wanted to buy them. And at one point, this is hard to believe, but at one point he actually took out an ad in the Wall Street Journal on June 1st, 1954, and the ad read, Biblical manuscripts dating back to at least 200 BC are for sale. This would be an ideal gift to an educational or religious institution by an individual or group. And the advertisement is the four Dead Sea Scrolls. But nobody would buy them because scholars weren't sure, they, were, they weren't convinced, are these really authentic? Is this, there's a lot of frauds, a lot of money to be made. 
And uh, so eventually he did end up selling them to an agent of the fairly young state of Israel in the year 1955 for $250,000. And those four scrolls were then united with the other three and uh, brought into the care of the state of Israel. So meanwhile, back in Israel in the year 1949, so 1948, this became known. In 1949, the scholars finally found the cave that the Bedouin had originally found, and they went in and investigated it, uh, including uh, Gerald Lancaster Harding and Ronald DeVoe. And they went in and they found a whole bunch of more fragments, hundreds of fragments of varying sizes in that cave that eventually came to be known as Cave One. Then between 1951 and 1956, 10 more caves were found. And competition between the Bedouin and archaeologists typically ended with the Bedouin getting the upper hand and finding more of these scrolls. And so we had this whole almost decade where these Bedouin, who are you know, considered to be you know, pretty, pretty, living pretty close to the earth, and uh, yet they're outwitting these PhD archaeologists with all their scientific tools, and uh, they're finding these old scraps of Hebrew papyrus and parchment, and they're, they're secreting them away and then selling them right back to the archaeologists and making a ton of money in the process. So it's a funny period that we're, that we're looking at here. But uh, in Cave 4, we alone, they found 15,000 fragments. In Cave 11, they, they found the largest scroll, the Temple Scroll. Uh, so, I mean, there's just a huge, huge cache of Hebrew manuscripts, uh, also Aramaic and some Greek manuscripts, totaling to about 900 different documents. Some of them are full scrolls, like the Isaiah scroll or the Psalms. Uh, others are no bigger than a postage stamp. The date range for the Dead Sea Scrolls is between 250 years before Christ and uh, about 68 years afterwards when there was the conflict with the Roman Empire in the First Great Jewish War. Uh, so there are two types of scrolls. There are biblical scrolls and there are non-biblical scrolls. For our purposes, we're looking at how we got the Bible. We're just interested in the biblical scrolls. So out of almost 900 scrolls or documents, about 215 of them turned out to be biblical scroll scrolls. Over time, more scrolls were discovered in the Judean desert in the surrounding region. Uh, there were 15 found at Wadi Marabat, 18 at Nahal Hever, and 12 at Masada, with a total of 45 more scrolls. So you have the 900 in the Dead Sea uh, scroll collection, but then you have these 45 others in the Judean desert general region. Uh, 12 of those happen to be biblical texts, mean, meaning that we have a total of 227 Biblical texts, Old Testament biblical texts of varying quality, of varying length, some of them no bigger than a postage stamp, some of them full multi-feet long scrolls. We're not talking about a codex anymore. These are scrolls. It's not the Dead Sea codices. It's the Dead Sea scrolls. Two of them are really large, and I've got one of them here on the screen for you. This is the Great Isaiah Scroll, also called 1Q Isaiah A, and this is written in Hebrew. It's the entire book of Isaiah. And it's only, you can see, only missing a few damaged portions at the bottom of the first few feet of the scroll. And it's the best preserved biblical scroll of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's made of 17 sheets of parchment. It's 24 feet long and about 10 and a half inches tall. Um, also, they found there the Psalm Scroll, or the Great Psalm Scroll. This is called 11Q PSA. 
It was found in Cave 11 in the year 1956, but they couldn't unroll it until 1961. So you find something in 56, but you can't unroll it to 60. Well, why not? It's too brittle. They're afraid it's going to break. There's a lot of other stuff going on. The, the whole discovery, this is a whole other side point, the whole discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls happened at the same time that uh, the land of Israel is going through tremendous political turmoil. The Dead Sea Scrolls were actually part of the country of Jordan, and Jewish scholars weren't even allowed to touch them for a long time because it was supervised by uh, Jordanians, and they had Christian scholars under this uh, Catholic gentleman by the name of DeVoe leading the project. So, I mean, there's a lot of politics involved, geopolitics, uh, religious politics going on, and uh, all of that factors into it. But this uh, psalm scroll that I was just showing you is about 14 feet long. It's written in regular Hebrew, but God's name is written in Paleo-Hebrew, which is really interesting. Even a thousand years before the Cairo Geniza, and this tradition of saving everything that had Hebrew on it, and especially anything that had God's name, saving it, putting it in the Geniza, treating it with all this respect, uh, caring so diligently for scriptures and other writings, that even before that, in the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which spans to 200 years before Christ, uh, to 100 after, that this period, they were, they were so concerned with the name of God, they said, okay, well, when it comes to writing the name of God, we're a little uncomfortable using this sort of modern script, so we're going to go back to the Paleo-Hebrew style of script. I mean, what does that tell you about these people, the, uh, the scribes who carried on this generation after generation? It tells you that they cared. Look at, look at how well-formed the letters are. I mean, you write by hand column after column and see how you do. I mean, it would be really hard. And, and we're using ballpoint pens. What do they have? some ash that they're scratching on the end of a stick or some other maybe more advanced inks that they had access to. This is, this is really, really hard stuff. And yet they did it and they preserved it all these different years. So really, really uh, fascinating material we're looking at here. So let's look at a breakdown of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Here's a nice chart that I was able to get from this book, Old Testament Textual Criticism by Bronsman and Tully. The book of Genesis, we have 20 manuscripts. These are partial, these are not full, partial manuscripts uh, of Genesis and one possibly additional one. Sometimes all you have is a word. In Exodus, we have 16, Leviticus 12, Numbers 6, Deuteronomy 30. Esther doesn't have any uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls represented. And if there was one more worm, we would not have had Ezra or Nehemiah either. <laughs> so we have one of, one of them. So, uh, but what, what do we have in most plenteous numbers? Well, we've got Deuteronomy. They just love Deuteronomy. 30 copies of it, 21 of Isaiah, and 34 of the Psalms. If you look at the quotations in the New Testament, what are the most quoted books from the Old Testament in the New Testament? It's these three same books. Deuteronomy, Isaiah and Psalms. So just like uh, the New Testament, which is a, a first century collection of documents, so with the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, the people of God have really been drawn to these books over the years. And uh, so I thought that was just an interesting thing to share. The Dead Sea Scrolls, however, were not widely available in published form until the early 1990s. Isn't that unbelievable? So 1947, this Bedouin shepherd finds this incredible group of scrolls, but nobody can really see them until the 90s, 50 years later? What happened? 
Well, there's, that's a whole other story, but it involves all these scholars and all these po this politics and uh, this different style of doing scholarship. But eventually, finally, uh, these scholars were, were able to put out the Dead Sea Scrolls, photographs of them, edits of them, transcriptions of them, commentary on them, and we were able to have access to them. Today, I've got a couple of books here that show you, uh, just to give you an idea of what's available in English, this, this book here is called the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, uh, which is really fascinating because inside of it, it's just like a regular Christian Bible that we're familiar with, but um, it's got all translations of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So instead of quoting from the Masoretic text or some other texts that uh, we've found over the years, is actually quoting from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you can see if there are any interesting differences and, and, and try to figure out like what is the most accurate reading in each case for that. Um, and uh, then you have other volumes like this one, which has all of the scrolls. I mentioned to you only about 212 or so of them were biblical. Well, what, what's all the other stuff? Well, there are other books that give you uh, the complete Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can you can see on the, the pages, well, you might not be able to see, but I'll just tell you, on the pages, there are lots of holes where there'll just be like dot, a bracket, and then dot, 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 and that's because these, these scrolls are not complete, they're fragmentary, and that is typical, that is typical for ancient stuff. So why, why does this matter? Why am I spending so much time on this? Look, this moves back our time for sources of the Old Testament a thousand years. We were using the Leningrad Codex and the Aleppo Codex, both from about a thousand years ago. And then along comes the Dead Sea Scrolls. 200, and including the Judean ones, 220 plus of these manuscripts predating everything we had by a thousand years. So this is just huge. But here's what's crazy to think about. How many English translations have been completed before 1990, or in the early 1990s, because any of those English translations, or translations into any language really, did not have access to the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this is, again, it's fairly a new field of study, and we're getting closer and closer to what Isaiah originally wrote, to what Jeremiah originally wrote, to what these different uh, books originally said. And, you know, the differences are not huge. You're not going to shatter your doctrine. Sometimes there's a spelling difference. Sometimes there's a place difference. And sometimes the differences are slightly more uh, significant. But, but typically, it's not something that would, it's not anything that's going to affect your salvation, okay? But it is interesting and helpful. We can actually get closer to the ancient form of the Bible that was originally written. So this shows us what kinds of Old Testament manuscripts were around at the time of Jesus as well, which is fascinating to think about. But the Dead Sea Scrolls are not the earliest written text we have of the Old Testament. There is one before that, and that is called the Ketef Hanam Silver Scroll. They flattened it out, and you can see it's got two pieces to it. You've got the, the piece on the left side here, and then the piece on the right side. They are able to de decipher some of the different letters. And then th these are the same, this is the same text, just written out in uh, Aramaic Hebrew letters, whereas on the left side here, this is in Paleo Hebrew letters. And as it turns out, this text goes all the way back to the time of the destruction of the first temple, sometime between 650 and 587 B.C., and it's the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6. It's the one that says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you 
and give you peace. And this is a silver amulet that would be worn on the arm as a reminder of that blessing. So this is really the most ancient little piece. <laughs> I know it's not the most exciting thing in the world. It's just a few verses, but it's so ancient. And it shows you that these are not these scriptures that we, that we hold to and that we study and that we uh, conduct our lives by. They're not fables made up by people a hundred years ago or a thousand or even two thousand. I mean, th these are ancient, ancient texts that have this history. So uh, really, sometimes just studying this stuff gives me chills to see how these things have been preserved over time. And uh, so next time we're going to consider some more ancient sources of the Old Testament and get into one more very, very important Hebrew text called the Samaritan Pentateuch and then uh, some ancient translations that are actually more important than you might imagine as we continue our quest to understand how we got the Bible. Well, this concludes this episode on the earliest Hebrew manuscripts. Next time, we'll take a look at a couple more, as I mentioned, the Samaritan Pentateuch and the Septuagint in particular, along with a number of others. If you would like to leave a comment or ask a question about this episode, please come on to restitudio.org. It's like the word restitution with no N, restitudio.org, and you can find episode 331, Bible Part 2, Earliest Hebrew Manuscripts, and leave your comment there. Also, I wanted to let you know, in the show notes for this episode, I have listed a number of books, certainly the Old Testament textual criticism book that I mentioned from last week, but also Sacred Trash, The Lost and Found World of the Cairo Geniza by Adina Hoffman and Peter Cole, which gives the whole story. Uh, starting out with these twins from the UK, uh, these widows who had the incredible ability to learn foreign languages, had had understood 12, no less than 12 languages between the two of them, and had gone off, and they were really the, the, uh, the instrumental ones to bring Schechter to the Cairo Geniza so that he could bring all those manuscripts back and start his work on them. So a really fascinating story about all of that in the book Sacred Trash. Um, then also I have three books about the Dead Sea Scrolls listed in the show notes for this episode. Uh, one in particular of interest that I mentioned in the episode is the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible by Abeg, Flint, and Ulrich, uh, which is really, really accessible for English speakers. Uh, it's just an English translation of a number of the different Dead Sea Scrolls arranged in the order of the Bible. Uh, so take a look at that if you're interested. And then last of all, if you want to see actual digital pictures of the Cairo Geniza, uh, you can just type in Cairo Geniza into your phone, and uh, there's an app. But you have to go to the website first, the Freeburg Geniza Project website, to create an account before you can access it through your app. So it's just some interesting stuff for you to follow up on if you would like to. If you'd like to support Restitudio, you can donate online at restitudio.org. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.